This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Grosso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast on the Be Here Now Network. And my guest today is Jessica Leahy. Jessica, thank you so much for joining me. You are so welcome. This is such a pleasure to be on with you. Well, thank you. So as uh, usual on the show, I'm just going to read your bio before we jump into this conversation, um, which I'm very excited to talk to you about. As Jessica and I were discussing, we're going to be talking a lot about parenting today, something I don't get to talk a lot about on the show. So super excited for this. But before we get to that, Jessica Leahy is a teacher, writer, and mom. She writes about education, parenting, and child welfare for The Atlantic, Vermont Public Radio, The Washington Post, and The New York Times, and is the author of The New York Times' best-selling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. She's a member of the Amazon Studios Thought Leader Board and wrote the educational curriculum for Amazon Kids, The Stinky and Dirty Show. Jessica, I love it. Every time <laughs> someone says that, it makes me giggle. You know, I'm trying to hold a straight face while I'm saying it, but I'm like, that is so great. <laughs> yeah. When I talk to teachers and I get introduced in front of teachers, especially the teachers of the younger kids, they just giggle and giggle. It's oh, so funny. Absolutely. I adore that. That's so lovely. Um, And then just a few more accolades we have here to share. Uh, Jessica earned a BA in uh, comparative literature from the University of Massachusetts and a JD with a concentration in juvenile and education law from the University of North Carolina School of Law. She lives in New Hampshire with her husband and two sons and teaches high school English and writing in Vermont. And her second book, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence, is to be released in 2020. For more information, I invite you to visit www.jessicalehy.com, or if you're checking this out on the Be Here Now Network, simply scroll down a little bit, and you will see the link right there. So that said, again, Jessica, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. <laughs> Thanks for uh, getting out that whole long-winded introduction. I, uh... no, I love it. Credit where credit's due. You have worked your ass off and that shows, you know, and, and I'm sure that barely, you know, scratches the surface of all you've accomplished. But I know uh, and I always feel weird when people read my bios personally, if I'm doing a talk or on a show. Um, but, you know, I've had to learn like, hey, you know, I have worked hard on some things in life and it's all right. So, uh, yeah, I had someone talk to me about that once. They noticed I was squirming um, yeah. before a talk once and. You know, they're like, she was like, sit up, be proud of it. That's, you know, the stuff that you did. You did that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I try very hard. 
yeah. popcorn. Yeah, well, all right. So uh, as I can tell from the few minutes we talked before we hit record and, and by you saying that, we definitely have a lot in common. Um, <laughs> I, I would have a thing where when I would give talks at festivals or conferences, people would give my intro. And then as soon as I had the microphone and I was going to speak, I would always offset that and being like, yeah, but really, I'm just a big yeah. kid who loves the Simpsons yep. and laughs at yep. weird stuff. But it's yep. like, yeah, so always something to work on. Um, and Absolutely. that's a big part of the show and a big part of what we'll be talking about today. So jumping right into things, first of all, um, you have this absolutely incredible book, uh, a New York Times bestseller, very well deserved. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah, how wonderful. It's called The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go so their children can succeed. And, um, you know, I, as I mentioned to Jessica, I, I'm not currently a parent. I was married for several years and had a stepdaughter and um, did my best. And I absolutely adored that. Uh, prior to that, I also worked at an elementary school for several years with um, kindergarten through fifth grade. I know that is in no way the same as parenting. But I share <laughs> that because as I'm reading this book, um, it really, a lot of it felt counterintuitive to me, but it made such sense. Um so that's why I'm so excited to to really talk about this. So um, what I figured, Jessica, if it's cool with you to start this off, I wanted to read just the first paragraph of the introduction sure. of uh, it's called How I Learned to Let Go. And I think that's a really great way to set the foundation for this conversation. So um, I'm going to go ahead and read that. It, it says, um, I became a parent and a middle school teacher in the same year. And these twin roles have shaped the way I've raised my children and educated my students. Over the course of my first decade raising two boys and teaching hundreds of children, I began to feel a creeping sense of unease, a suspicion that was something that, I'm sorry, that something was rotten in the state of my parenting. But it was only when my elder children entered middle school that my worlds collided and the source of the problem became clear to me. Today's overprotective, failure-avoidant parenting style has undermined the competence, independence, and academic potential of an entire generation. From my vantage point at the front of a classroom, I'd long viewed myself as a part of the solution, a champion of my students' intellectual and emotional bravery. However, as the same caution and fear I witnessed in my students began to show up in my own children's lives, I had to admit that I was part of the problem too. So, you know, I, I applaud you for being so vulnerable with your own situation and, and really just starting the book on that note. So from there, um, can you elaborate a little bit on that? I mean, there's plenty more that you go into detail in the intro, but I always love it when writers share their own words um, about their experience. Sure. So I I think in part in the bio you read, I had a law degree and, and that was my plan. I was going to be a juvenile attorney. Uh, that was, you know, in the I guess in the way we're all positive, we know exactly what we're going to oh, do sure. when we're in our early 20s. And um, I had a mentor. I had a job I knew I was going to slide right into in district court, working in juvenile court. Um, and I went and I taught uh, for over one summer when I was in law school. And that was it. I mean, I was sunk that I knew the day I taught that first group of middle school kids that that's what I was going to be doing with the rest of my life. And, mm -hmm. and it's been, um, uh, it's been amazing. It's as of this year, it's 20 years. I was pregnant with my son who's 19, wow. almost 20 when I walked into that first classroom. So it's been 20 years teaching every grade from six to 12. And what I started to realize over time 
what, teaching in both public and private and hoity-toity and not hoity-toity schools is that, um, you know, the parents were increasingly involved, in, which is great, and increasingly rescuing their kids from you know, their mistakes, their, the consequences of their mistakes, you know, they would run in with the homework that was due, you know, and, and interrupt class and hand it in for their kid and stuff like that. And, you know, at first I was just kind of uh, annoying. And then I had this sneaking suspicion that not only was this sort of overly directive parenting style where we sort of tell kids what, where, when, why, how to do stuff. Yeah that it was messing with their motivation, which I'm happy to get into, but that's well-worn territory with um, Dan Pink and um, Edward DC. but that it was, it messes with their ability to learn. And yeah. that's the connection that I hadn't really seen fleshed out. I'd seen, um, you know, effects of overparenting on um, what they call directive or controlling parenting on mm-hmm. sort of behavior stuff, but I hadn't really sort of put no one had really I think put the two together in terms of their kids academic and and intellectual potential and the answer is is if you're really directive and really controlling with your kids it absolutely impairs their ability to learn over the long term mainly because the most powerful teaching tools I have the most evidence-based strongest most um, important teaching tools in my tool belt are um, depend on kids ability to get frustrated and to stick with that frustration for a little bit and push through it mm. and kids who have been highly directive uh, high, highly directed and controlled are less likely to have the emotional wherewithal they need in order to be comfortable with frustration and you know at the same you know at the moment that I realized that I, I got really mad at the students of my parents and I'm um, oh, sorry at the parents of my students and the problem with that is, is well, there's so many problems with that. But also at the same time, I realized that I was doing the exact same thing to my own children and that I was raising kids who couldn't be frustrated, who um, their learning was being uh, messed with. They're, they didn't know how to talk to adults. They were scared of their own you know, they were scared of making mistakes because they didn't want to look stupid. And, you know, I, as angry as I wanted to be at all those parents, I, I, you know, I had to admit that I was one of those <laughs> parents, which is so highly inconvenient. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, you know, I really like the, what you're saying is reminding me of, um, a wonderful guest I had on, and he's a dear, dear friend of mine. His name is J.P. Sears. Um, yep. He's known as the ultra-spiritual um, fellow with the red, long hair. He does a very funny <laughs> YouTube videos. But what a lot of people don't know is that aside from that whole shtick, he is absolutely brilliant, and he is very well-versed in developmental psychology, has uh, studied young in depth, and, and a lot of other developmental psychologists. And I remember um, talking with him about uh, childhood experiences and, and the role that plays in, in our later years in regards to addictions or any kind of self-defeating behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, but something that came up for him that, and I don't know that it was specifically in regards to that topic, but he did say at one point, talking about... Um, the importance of parents allowing their children to make mistakes, to fall down and get those bruises. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember thinking, wow, you know, like that, that's, that resonated with me. But again, um, as I mentioned earlier, reading your book, it was a lot of things like that that seem counterintuitive to me because it's mm-hmm. been what's instilled in me from my own parents and was thus instilled in them from their parents and, you know, back so many generations and understandably, our parents are doing the best in most cases, the best they oh, can with what they have. Um, but then that's, I love 
hearing this stuff and reading this stuff because, wow, I don't know if one day I will have a child of my own, but um, I sure do a plenty uh, or do a lot of work with uh, younger people, mm-hmm. as I know, of course, you do too. So even if you're not a parent, this is such important um, information to know and a great way to look at things differently. Um, so, you know, that said, we could unpack what you just talked about in, in so many different uh, regards. And please know, moving forward, this is a topic that has barely been discussed on my show, as I've told you. So there's nothing <laughs> well-worn in this conversation. Okay. So no worries there. Um, but let's talk a little bit about backtracking a little. You did mention you were planning on going to school to be an attorney. You kind of had that whole um, game plan laid out before you. And here you are now with this New York Times bestselling book. And aside from that, uh, you t- you write for The Atlantic and mm-hmm. Washington Post, New York Times. Incredible stuff. Where was it that the trajectory shifted for you and um, and basically, you know, I don't want to say no, I was going to say regret. That's a silly way to, <laughs> to say something. But, um, you know, because um, for me, I guess I'll just give a quick example. I never intended to be an author. I never intended to be a public speaker. Right. I was going to be a some kind of a social worker or um, substance abuse counselor, something of that nature. And now here I am. So same same as you. I had my blueprint laid out. Right. Um, and life just is life. It does what it will do. So, yeah, if you could talk a little about how that shifted for you and, and um, where you're at now with that. I think when I uh, first of all, you have to know. So I've had this really wonderfully meandering career trajectory. Um, <laughs> I've done a little bit of everything. Yeah. But I when I look back on all of it, uh, the the two things that are the through line are teaching and writing. So I've written my entire life and, you know, all the way through, you know, the classic story, I was editor and chief of my school paper, that kind of stuff. And writing has always been something that I knew, I knew in terms of expression, that was how I got across best. And Mm -hmm. I've worked as I was a speechwriter for a U.S. governor. I, um, you know, I've done all kinds of writing along the way. And when I, I wrote, I wrote a book about, I don't know, 12 years ago that was never published, which is good because it sucked, but it was, <laughs> it's sort of that, that book that's supposed to remain in the drawer because it's your practice book. Of course. So I did that. And, uh, when I finished that book, I sort of turned to my husband and I said, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to write about now. I've, you know, I've exhausted that topic and I just don't know what to write about. And he said, well, the thing that really makes you light up and come alive is teaching. So why don't you write about that? And I said, said, no one wants to read about teaching. I mean, like, who's going to read that? Well, as it turns out, as I've come to find out uh, through the years that, you know, teachers, one of the best things I think about the internet has been that teachers have been invited to blog about their teaching and to create these blogs about what's working and what's not working in their classroom and be really frank so that other teachers can learn from it. And that was the genesis of my writing about education. And that blog uh, got, you know, quote unquote, discovered. And um, I started writing for some bigger outlets and which led to the New York Times, which led to the Atlantic and all these other places. But really, it started with just blogging about my own teaching in an effort to become a better teacher. And, uh, you know, the book came, uh, the nice thing about the book is that um, my editor at the New York Times tells me I'm not allowed to tell people that 
I got lucky because I, I, while I did, I mean, obviously there was great fortune involved in writing an article about, um, about directive parenting and how it affects kids in the classroom mm. that went viral and, and that's fantastic. But I'd also been writing for a long time at that point. So when that article went nuts, I was able to point to a whole body of writing that I'd been doing for years and it was, I was sort of ready. It wasn't like one of those you know, I, most people I know that seemingly are overnight successes, you know, you ask them a little bit about how they got started and you realize there was lots and lots of work that went into becoming an overnight success. So yeah. you know, it, the work was all there. And I've, like I said, I've always loved writing. And, and then the nice thing now is my job is to find things that interest me, research the heck out of them, which is my favorite part of the job, mm. and then write about them in a way that's understandable to other people. And especially, you know, to people that um, may not have one source of really solid evidence-based information and, and, in, and translated in a way that's approachable and doesn't make you feel like a bad parent and doesn't make you feel like a bad person and doesn't shame you. And, you know, all that sort of stuff is really important to me. So, you know, it's like the best job ever. I get to explore and then write about it. I, I couldn't be luckier, really. That's absolutely amazing. And let me say, first of all, for listeners, um, going back to what you're talking about, writing a book on parenting and, and who's going to want to read that or teaching who's going to want to read that. Um, that's what I love about your writing is you write it in such a way that it really draws the reader in. It's accessible. It's entertaining. It absolutely, again, I'm not speaking from a parent's point of view, but mm -hmm. I, I would not, if I was a parent in any way, feel bad about any of the behaviors I might be doing that are um, not in sync with what you're writing about. If anything, I would be like, oh, this is great. You know, what a lovely way to open my eyes to a different technique or path or, or whatever the case may be with my child. Um, so I love the way you write. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, it's that's huge. Thank you. That means so much to me, especially since part of my job, uh, especially with speaking, I spend most of my, uh, my time speaking actually during the academic year in particular. Um, yeah. I have to say some things that are really hard to hear. Yeah. Sure. Um, and in order to do that, I have to get people on my side. And, you know, part of the way I do that is through talking about my own mistakes and all that sort of stuff. But you know, there's just some really hard stuff that we as parents need to think about that uh, makes us a little bit uncomfortable. And especially when I start talking about the addiction stuff and being honest about our own addictions before we can hope to talk about our children's, um, that stuff can really be off-putting. And so there's yeah. this very delicate dance to do if you want to be heard yes. and yet also push people into action and, yeah. and get them a little bit off balance so that they say, oh, wait, this isn't just something I need to listen to. This might be something I need to act on. Yeah, absolutely. So, that so much to me that, that the information seemed, uh, seemed accessible to you and didn't seem intimidating or off putting. So that's, no. thank you so much. Yeah. Well, and that, and I, I love that. That's to me, the sign of a great book, something that to be honest, I normally might not pick up because you know, it's not directly in line with something I'm experiencing in my life. Parenting, for example. Um, but no, the book, it was it was captivating and it kept my attention the whole time. And and I share that with you, you know, having uh, three books out now myself and trying to write about topics that 
um, and making them accessible, especially to a younger target demographic. Mm-hmm. Though I love that people in, from their teens to 60s and 70s um, resonate with it. But yes, trying to write in a way where it can hold someone's attention, talk about things that aren't always comfortable, um, addiction, even spirituality, using the God word, talking about mm-hmm. interspirituality, and, you know, so many things that could potentially be loaded. Um, so it is... I, I'm not saying I'm, I've nailed it, but it is an art um, to be able well, to I do that. Well, I think you do it in a fairly similar way. I mean, the the way in is through stories. Yes, and, absolutely. And, you know, the, the, whether it's the stories of my students, the stories of friends, the stories, um, you know, in this book on addiction, the stories in this book are what drive the book. And, yeah. you know, as a huge consumer of nonfiction, that's my ideal nonfiction book. You know, sure. any any bit of learning that's in, encompassed inside of someone's fascinating personal narrative, yeah. I'm all in. I'll read anything. You can just give me a book about, you know, even topics I'm not interested in. As long as the I'm learning something through someone's personal experience, yes. I'm, I'm all in. Yeah. So. And that's, I'm a huge documentary nerd for that same reason. Like exactly. I love the human experience. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and this book has actually been, I, I mean, the secret of this book is, and you know, if you know the publishing world at all, you know that traditional publishing feels uh, they have to market a book in a way that they're used to doing it and that makes sense. And yeah. really you have to think about what shelf it's going to go on in the bookstore and what category it'll be on in Amazon. And Yes, this is always on a parenting shelf. It's always in the parenting category in Amazon. But that's, but really for me, I wrote this book for teachers and coaches and pastors and anyone who's working with kids because it's about learning and being human and raising, you know, raising great adults. And that's not just done by parents. And so really I have teachers to thank for um, for really keeping this book selling. It's been out for three years and my sales are pretty much where they were right after the book came out. And, you know, I have teachers to thank for that because now, you know, they ask me to come to schools and I get to talk to the teacher. I get to talk to the students during the day and then the teachers in the afternoon and we do some professional development on education stuff. And then I talk to the parents at night and I get to really do the full you know, really close that circle of communication between parents and teachers and kids. And that's, you know, it's, it's just amazing to me. I love it so much. Yeah. I'm excited to give this book to my brother. He is actually also a teacher. He teaches um, math in uh, high school here in South Windsor, Connecticut. And he's been doing that for my goodness, over 15 years. And he also uh, has a two beautiful girls um they're roughly about to be three and five and um i yeah i'm so excited to give this to him so um, well and i'm i happen to know where that is and i will be speaking right near him in november so we'll make sure he gets invited to that we'll get, oh him, we'll get him a copy of the a signed copy of the book and everything before oh wow yes and yeah. uh, we'll have to touch base afterwards because i would love yeah, to come yeah, see that too but yeah, um, my, full, yeah. my full speaking schedule is always up at jessicalahey.com and by the way when I refer to like books or authors and all that stuff, if you go to JessicaLahey.com mm. under the menu heading um, speaking, there's a big button that says download speaking bibliography. And it's mm. essentially 
my greatest hits. Like if people ask me for book recommendations on everything from teaching to parenting to, you know, screen time stuff, all of that, all of those books are there on that bibliography. So you can find my speaking schedule there. And and then, you know, if you pull down the bibliography, you don't have to write any of this stuff down. I absolutely love that. Thank you for doing that. Like, cause absolutely. I, yeah, I, in my first two books, I, at the back, I put similar, like here's some great books to get you started. If yeah. you're not familiar, I have on my website, downloadable books. You can read i often post pictures of books i'm reading asking people what are you reading because i'm a big book nerd so i'm well, so glad to do to that do yeah. every week on our I, I do a podcast on writing with uh kj delantonia my former new york times editor and close friend and she's a, a really she's not a book coming out called how to be a happier parent it comes out in wow. august and she and i at the end of each um episode we talk about what we've been reading and that's my favorite part of oh, the that's podcast so great. it's so much fun i love that well, so you've mentioned um, a, a couple of times I know addictions come up and you mm-hmm. do work with uh, addiction and, and you've had experience with that. So um, just a broad open ended question to you, if you want to talk about that, um, sure. that in relation to this conversation would be wonderful and you can go anywhere with it. Sure. So I um, so I was offered a book deal on the gift of failure in 2013 and I had previously already suspected that my drinking was out of control. Mm. <laughs> I already knew that. This was not news to me. Sure. I was in deep um, hiding it mode. Uh, I was totally ashamed because addiction runs really deep in my family. And I, I knew that that was the one thing I was ne- I was never going to be like those people, you yeah. know, that kind of thing. Um, and I didn't have a problem with alcohol at all until I was in my 40s. I was I got a late start on this whole addiction thing. Yeah. It was just never an issue for me before that. And um, and it very much became an issue for me. And there were I you know, when I go to meetings, when I go to 12 step meetings and I, I hear all these, you know, all these stories of terrible things that have happened to people. I'm one of those really fortunate people who got into recovery before I I have a lot of not yet. So I have a lot of, you know, that hasn't happened yet kind of thing. So my essentially my father uh, came to me right after I sold gift of failure and basically said, you're an alcoholic and um, you're going to blow this. You're going to blow this opportunity. And he was right. And I already knew that. So um, I wrote a I actually have a piece. um, I wrote about the fact that there's you know, you have to give something up sometimes to make you know, these huge life goals come true. And for me, in order to get this book written, I had to give up booze. I couldn't write and, um, I couldn't write and drink at the same time. It just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So I gave up, uh, drinking and, uh, it was, I just had my fifth anniversary and it's, you know, it's been amazing. Um, and one year in, I went and spoke, um, we, as a service thing, went and spoke at a, uh, a rehab that's close to where I live mm-hmm. that has adolescents there, um, inpatient. Yeah. And I kind of looked around, I loved the kids, of course. Yeah. And I looked around and I sort of thought, wait a second, if they're here 24 seven, they have to have some, they have to, go to school in some capacity. And it turns out that's they do. And yeah. and there's a school at the rehab. And uh, I've been their writing teacher for four years now. So it's been, you know, for me, it's it's the best possible situation, because I'm continuing to teach on a part time basis. And I travel so much, I couldn't do it full time. Sure. They are the reason I mean, when it comes down to it, yes, I stay sober, because you know, it's been a miracle and it's been amazing and my life is blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> I can't 
go teach those kids if I'm not sober. And those kids are like one of the most important things I have done in my life, teaching those kids. So um, they're a very big part of my recovery as well. And uh, it's, I honestly, and obviously we also talked about this meandering life that sort of shows you what's supposed to come next. And after Gift of Failure did so well and you know, everyone's saying, well, what's next? What's next? What's next? And I took a long time to figure that out. I wrote a whole bunch of book proposals. I talked to my agent incessantly and she's like, eh, you know, I don't know. That's not quite it yet. Cause I didn't want to do like sort of gift of failure part two. And then all of a sudden, all these things that I had come, that I'd sort of researched through gift of failure and all the stuff that I love writing about now, which is, kids in at really high risk of failure, kids in the foster care system, kids who have yeah. really high ACE scores, adverse childhood experience, kids who have experienced trauma, um, kids who have, you know, unresolved issues with learning or unresolved learning issues, unaddressed learning issues, all of that stuff. Like I was driving down to Boston one day for something. I, was, I had a speaking gig, I think. And it just clicked all these things. It was like, you know, all the tumblers falling into place. And I pulled over and I texted my two best friends and I said, I've got it. I know what the next book is going to be. And and, uh, it took me almost a year to sort of research and write the proposal for it. And then we just sold it to my editor at Harper um, just a couple of months ago. Wow. Well, congratulations. I'm very excited to hear that. And thank you for sharing about your experience so candidly, because it is... uh, I think really important. You know, I, I, I'm in recovery. That's very obvious. We talk mm-hmm. about that a lot on this show. Um, and, you know, I, I respect a lot of people keep that private. They don't mm-hmm. feel it's something they need to share and that's fine. But I think, I, or at least for me, I really appreciate when people who are in the public eye to whatever extent um, do, you know, talk about their their hardships and their successes and, and letting people know and, and um I know you've had a chance to look at um, some of my third book, which is that was the inspiration for mine is is uh, big time falling. And I, too, as we were talking about, uh, I think, pre conversation, uh, I do three workshops a month at a it sounds very similar. It's an inpatient residential uh, with youth, male and female, ages 14 to 20. And um, it was very difficult for me to be away from them uh, during the relapse, mm-hmm. and um, and I miss them because I too I travel, I speak all over, which I love doing. But that is where my heart. It, it it's interesting. I leave there, and it's like my part is or my heart is equal parts broken yep. and f- yeah. totally fulfilled at the same time. Um, yeah, I I think I'm of a similar mind. I think it's really hard for me, you know, every single time I'm up on stage and I mention that I'm a recovering alcoholic and I do it, it happens to fit in into even the gift of failure stuff I talk about now because yeah. I you know, talk about my students and where I teach. Um, I always have people come up to me and kind of whisper, you know, oh, I have 10 years or yeah. if I'm doing research on a plane and they see what I'm, what books I'm reading, they'll turn to me and, and, and open up that they're, they have, um, you know, X number of years. And the thing for me that's really hard about that is I also am part of a family in which for a very, for generations, that stuff is meant, you don't talk about that stuff. So I, I'm really torn sometimes. I do respect people's, you know, right to keep that private. I absolutely do. But I also really strongly feel number one, that not talking about it is what keeps us afraid of talking about it and keeps people afraid of admitting to their foibles. But also, 
frankly, the people I have gotten to know, um, either through talking about recovery or talking about this book, I was, did the rich role podcast a couple of years ago. And rich is this incredible endurance athlete. And that's fascinating, but it's way more fascinating based on the fact that he was a drug addict. I mean, his story is really interesting because it's a part of a journey. And in the same way that, um, you know, when students come to me and they say, you know, how do I write a really good college essay? The pro- the hard part for me is that a student that's just had it easy and had, everything has been perfect since day one, it's re- really hard to write an interesting letter of recommendation for that kid for college. Mm-hmm. But a kid that's had a journey and a kid that has been willing to admit to their the mistakes they've made and has really worked hard to push through and become something else. Those are the kids that I love writing about. And those are the adults that I love meeting and getting to know. I just, it's, I'm sad for the people who feel like they have to keep their recovery a secret. And, And I would never, ever, ever say that they're wrong or that that's the wrong way to be. It just makes me sad that that's not a part. That's not something that more kids can't hear about because I think that the force of other people's stories is what um, keeps us moving forward towards, you know, healthier life outcomes. So I I wish more people felt free to talk about it. Yeah, agreed. And, and I'm, you know, I've, I've seen a shift in that. There was a great film called the anonymous people done on this. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen it, but um, Mm -hmm. yeah, Connecticut resident Greg uh, Williams did it really wonderful film. And it's nice to see that in some regards that is shifting, but then, you know, I get messages on a daily basis. A lot of them are, um, you know, just very nice. They've read the book, watched an interview, heard a talk. And even if they're not in recovery, it helped them understand why their loved one's in recovery um, or this or that. But what is difficult for me just to read is, is similar to what you were saying. A lot of messages I get are people saying, thank you for sharing so vulnerably about your experience. I, too, am in recovery, whether they're new or several years in um, but they don't talk about it. You know, even yeah. in some cases they don't let their not immediate, but extended family know like they, they, mm-hmm. they don't want to let their parents know or their siblings are ashamed um, of that. And and I, I get that. Um, I understand it to a certain extent. Even in my case, I unfortunately have suffered uh, or not suffered, but experienced a number of relapses. And mm-hmm. no, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to write about that. I still, <laughs> I still feel guilt and shame and embarrassment. I, I, on the cognizant level, I know better, but um, I still feel that. And that's the last thing I really want to do is write about. Hey, here I am, someone who's written books on the addiction and recovery process and experience, and I still relapsed. But well, and, and as you know, I mean, I think that, that makes it even more important for you to talk about it because, as agreed. you well know, relapse is a really big part of kids' stories, Absolutely. mainly because of the way the way treatment works for kids yeah. or often doesn't work for kids. Yes, yeah. um, is that you know, kids have so little control over their environment, and then we just you know, often I know I'm looking at my student, and I know we're sending her back to the same home where she's parenting her parent because her parent is a drug addict, yeah. and you know how on earth she's supposed to stay sober or why she's supposed to stay sober in the first place kind of eludes her um, and eludes me. And I don't really, I can't do much more than give her a hug and tell her that I believe in her and, and hope that I don't see her again. Um, but I do, I see these kids over and over and over again. We just, I just said goodbye to a kid I've seen four times now. And he has no incentive to, there's not only no incentive, he has no, support for staying uh sober so your story you know my story is you know neat 
easy peasy. I, you know, went into my first 12 step meeting and stayed cleaned ever since. But that's not most of my students story. And sure. what, what's really telling to me, interestingly, is when I t- I'm this big dork, I look like a big academic geek. <laughs> uh, you know, I um, I love research. I love, you know, when we yeah. get talking about like where words come from, I get all lit up. I'm yeah. a huge dork and I laugh about it all the time. And then they find out that I'm in recovery too. And they say, inevitably, they say, oh, wow, you don't look like um, an alcoholic. And mm-hmm. that's the problem. I mean, I do look like an al- alcoholic. I know a lot of alcoholics look just like me. 100%, and yeah. until until, you know, until we can get to a point where my students don't look at me and say, wow, you really don't look like an alcoholic. Um, I don't think we're going to get very far with helping people understand that it's just one of those um, afflictions that does not respect any class, race, wealth, boundary lines at all. And then the beautiful thing, though, is neither does recovery, you know, so and that's what I love about uh, the 12 step programs. And and even if I know plenty of people that have recovered without a program or a 12 step, they do it their own way. God bless whatever works for you. That's what I advocate for. But it's funny, um, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, well, sure, I, I probably fit that stereotypical mold, heavy, heavily covered in tattoos, big holes in my ears. There have been times, Jessica, where I've gone to speak in detoxes or rehabs, and the people think I'm actually a client or a resident <laughs> there. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm here to speak. So I always get a kick out of that. But I did want to go back and, and, and talk about, you made such a good point about the the children parenting the parents um because mm-hmm. yes in that's same here just last wednesday i was doing one of the workshops um at the facility i i go to and teach at and um there was a 14 year old boy there it was it was his second inpatient program at 14 years old and um one of the other young boys mentioned how his dad uh, beats him and mm-hmm. this boy said the same thing. He's like, yeah, and I, I understand my dad does too. He goes, but then he goes, uh, but I deserve it because I'm a real screw up. And yeah. my, I, I mean, my heart just, my heart and my stomach like just mm-hmm. sank. And I was like, why do you feel like you deserve it? And he's like, well, you know, I've lied to him. I've, I've, um, I failed him so many times and he was failed by his parents and he's an alcoholic and, you know, and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, you know, yeah. like, no, you don't deserve that. And yeah. that, you know, the rest of that conversation is beyond, beyond the scope really of what we have time for in this, but, um, it's so heartbreaking, well, I, I think, you know, I think one of our biggest jobs working with these kids, um, there's a fantastic book, uh, called making hope happen by, uh, Shane Lopez and Shane nice. died just a year and a half ago and uh, oh, I miss him terribly. But his book about hope being the thing that allows, especially some a kid, to not only have hopes and dreams, to have goals and hopes and dreams, but to make them happen, to get out there and actually make their make their lives better. Mm-hmm. Um, that thing is hope. And often, you know, I talk about what my goals are as a teacher. Often my goals are just to get a book in a kid's hands or often my my one goal for one kid is just to make them see that there's something else for them than living in the situation they're living in um and that that gift of some tiny kernel of hope sometimes is you know the the most important thing i do for these kids and it's shocking to me how many kids live in situations where they have absolutely no one offering that to him to them so yeah. Yeah, that's 
keep doing what you're doing because that's what you're offering yeah. as well. And vice versa. And, and on the topic of hope, I'll share a really quick story and then I want to jump back into your book. Um, but I've, I've shared this on the show before, but it's been a while and I think it's worth mentioning. Um, it's such a wonderful um, reminder for me. Um, but anyway, so I have the word hope tattooed on my left hand across my knuckles and it was excellent. Uh, yeah. It's, it's so important to me. And I got this um, right after I'd gotten out of my first inpatient program back in 2004 because hope, you know, it just meant the world to me. And mm -hmm. so I was sober for about 14 months and I was visiting Rome. Um, I'd always wanted to go there and I had a friend who was there. She was a language major in Connecticut, but during summer she would be a tour guide there. So I had a free place to stay. just had to pay for my plane ticket and food. It was wonderful. I had my own personal tour guide for nine days in Rome. I was about <laughs> 14 months sober and I went on June 1st. It was her birthday. My birthday is June 3rd. And so I was there for two days and I was like, Hey, I've been sober 14 months. I, I can drink. I'm fine. And that thus began my first relapse. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, when in Rome, took it a little too yep. literally. But the story that proceeds or follows that is um, I'm on the bus. It's about 2 a.m. and you can drink openly in Rome. Um, I have one of those big Foster's right. cans of beer. And there's a gentleman sitting uh, across from me, slightly diagonally to my left. And he's looking at, at me. And I'm used to that because I have a lot of tattoos. But um, mm -hmm. he, usually when I look at people looking at me, they look away. This guy did not. And but he's in his like late 80s and I'm you know, what am I going to do? So I just kind of sit there and about five minutes pass and I'm ready to actually at this point, I'm getting frustrated. I'm ready to say something to him. But he points at my hand and he says hope in a very you know broken uh, Italian accent. And I was like, yeah. And he goes, that's the last to die. And I was like, hmm. wow. And I share that because I since then have subsequently experienced a number of relapses. But during each one. It was as if, you know, I heard that man saying those words to me when I was at the bottom of the bottom, mm -hmm. ready to throw in the towel. I mean, it, it was eerie. It was like he was speaking them right into my ear. Um, hope it's the last to die. And it was just it helped me kindle that that little flame within my heart to keep going. And so I, I, I do like to share that whenever I get the chance, you know, because maybe somebody listening to this is struggling right now. Um, but there is always hope until our last breath. So um, I think that there's uh, we um, underestimate one, you know, the, the tiny things we say, we sort of figure, you know, no one's really paying attention to what we say. But every once in a while, you know, I I get to hear something at a meeting or in my classroom from a student and it stays with me for a really long time and ends up being the rescuing sentiment that uh, that makes me think, oh, no, no, I can't. I this is would be a really bad time, a bad idea for me to have, you know, a beer because, you know, my student said you're the only person that's ever taken me seriously and thought that I could be anything other than, mm -hmm. you know, a, a kid who ends up in prison. This, you know, I have students tell me that all the time that yeah. every all the men in their family ended up in prison. So really, why should they expect anything different? Yeah. And the idea that a kid would say that to me and thank me for being, you know, the one person who thinks that maybe he won't end up in prison. Well, there you go right there. There's no way I'm going to take a drink. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so thank you for the work you're doing as well. And anyone listening who is doing this sort of work or any work to be a benefit out there, thank you. Um, you know, we, the world is in need of it now more than ever. And, uh, and so my, my sincere thanks to you and, and all the listeners. Um, yeah, but that, see, the yeah. secret thing is it's the most fun, best work ever. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you experience this, but I feel weird even calling it work. You know, it doesn't. It's, 
I actually thought I was volunteering at first. Um, I really did. I thought yeah. I was volunteering, and then I started getting paid a little, a token amount per class. Yeah. So I just decided that all goes to books for the kids. I've never oh, taken money. Wow. Uh, I've never pocketed money for teaching these kids because yeah. it's such a gift to me. Yeah. And uh, and then, you know, when they steal the books, which they inevitably do, oh, then I'm here. like, well, those books were supposed <laughs> to belong to them. Exactly. So, yes, they order a lot of copies of my books, too, at the, at the facility. And I don't, yep. you know, there's a little confusion. Um, are we allowed to take them? Aren't we? And, you know, so when, when a, a young man or woman or young teenager or whatever is uh, getting ready to leave, they'll often ask me to sign. And it's like, uh, yeah, and I just play stupid. So, you know, yeah. same same thing, you know, um, who knows. But um, if they've benefited enough from it to bring it home, awesome. And, and same with you, you know, how great is that? And who knows if they'll pass it along and, and the ripple effects it could potentially have. So, um that's lovely. So yeah, let's jump back into this book. So we have about 15 minutes left and mm-hmm. we've touched on maybe one or two of the actual questions I put down, which I, that's a great <laughs> thing. I love when the conversations go organically in their own direction. This has been a real pleasure, but you know, like I said, this book is absolutely phenomenal and I, I, I would be remiss if we didn't talk a little more about it. So I think one of the ways we can do that is I, you know, I'd broken down all these questions and samples uh, to read from different chapters, but since we're running short on time with the book you sent me, there was this really great bookmark that on it has um, (laughs) five tips for parents. So if you're game for this, maybe we could run through those tips, which I think are a great overview of what's covered in the book. Of course, there's a lot more than this, but it gives, um, I think, the audience a really great um, overview of this. So well, maybe, and essentially, they're yeah. the, the five, when people say, you know, how can I leave here tonight and change the way I sort of approach parenting? Yeah. They're like those distilled points. Yes. So I'm, I'm glad to go over them. Yeah. So I figured let's, if, if you're game, we'll do each one. We'll go one by one. I'll read it. And then if you want to just elaborate, because they are sim- just a simple concise sentence which is great um but if you want to just share a few thoughts on each one if you're game for that we'll maybe do that to uh to talk about the book awesome so number one value the process of learning over the product of grades i love that yeah so this is a biggie mainly because for two reasons um when i talk to parents about the way they connect with their kids and connection is a really important part of building sort of kids intrinsic motivation of wanting to learn for the sake of learning itself one of the most important things is this connection and what i hear a lot is that kids when i poll kids about whether they really truly feel in their hearts that their parents love them more when they do well in school and less when they do poorly about 80 percent of middle school students tell me raise their hands and say yes to that um, and about 90% of high school students do and one of the ways we can get around that which by the way is that's called um, withdrawal of love based on performance uh, one of the ways we can get around that is by really valuing the process over the product the process of learning and instead of just saying oh all I really care about is the learning we really do um, talk about that process. The other nice thing about valuing the process over the product is that increasingly what I'm seeing a lot of is really anxious kids mm. um, and kids who are really hung up on being perfect and really anxious about never making a mistake, always looking perfect. If we constantly bring the conversation back to the process of learning instead of the end product, the grade, the award or whatever, then they really will believe us when they when we tell them that we care more about the learning than the end result. And um, that can really help kids get over their anxiety. I do a 
I do a set of videos uh, on YouTube called Frequently Asked Questions uh, about mm. the gift of failure. And one of them is about how to sort of help kids who are really anxious and, and perfectionist into over into the OCD realm. And valuing the process out of the product is one of the best things we can do for kids. I love that. Thank you so much. Moving on to number two, offer up more support and less control. Yeah, so controlling parenting or directive parenting is what leads kids to, um, well, to a lot of things. They lie to us more, number one. Uh, kids lie, if kids are heavily controlled or directed, they tend to lie more to their parents. Yeah. But they also are afraid to take risks and they don't really get a sense of what they want. Um, so rather than sort of try to fix things for them or try to pave the way for them or control how they do things, believe in them, believe in the idea that they can do it themselves, but have some belief in their competence and say, you know, well, how would you solve this problem? And that sort of support is really from a teacher. That's what we love to hear is that um, parents are sort of instead of handing over the answer are saying, I'm totally here to support you and you finding the answer, but I'm not going to just hand you the answer. Mm, excellent. And I, I absolutely see how that works. You know, fortunately for me, my parents were kind of in the middle of that. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, that really helped me to not feel as pressured. You know, sure, they were trying to, um, they, I mean, they were, they were your typical parents. They, they asserted control and to a certain extent, you know, you, I guess you need to do that. But I, I do feel very, uh, very grateful in the sense that uh, they really let me find my own way in many regards. And, and that's helped me, especially in my spiritual path. They never forced me to go to church, never forced me to believe anything, never force me, fed me anything. Um, so certainly grateful to them for that, which I know is a little digression from what you're talking about, but kind of hand in hand. So yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So number three, remember that every rescue is a lesson lost. And, and you write about rescue. I love this in the book. Um, I don't know if you want to talk a little about that, but um, yeah, go ahead. Well, so as a teacher, again, I mentioned that increasingly I was seeing situations where parents were suddenly you know, a kid would forget his homework and I would spend, you know, as a middle school teacher in particular, my job is to watch kids screw up every day and then help them find solutions and not give them solutions, not tell them what to do, but to help them find their own strategies and solutions. And increasingly what was happening was that, you know, the parent would show up with the homework and sort of eradicate the lesson, eradicate the moment, get rid of it. You know, suddenly the kid is like, well, that's my strategy, right? Someone's always going to show up and, and hand in my homework for me or, you know, rescue me. Um, so every time, you know, there are little things like when I travel a lot, sometimes I take my younger kid with me and, you know, you have to go up to those kiosks at the airport and it's a little complicated getting your information and checking in. Well, I don't know when exactly I thought my kid would just suddenly figure that out on his own. I used to walk in and just do it myself. And at a certain point, I started saying, oh, wait a second. No, no, no. <laughs> Here, you, kid, walk up to that um, walk up to that kiosk and you do it because you're going to have to at some point. And I don't know when you're supposed to learn that, if not right now. So there are all these small moments throughout the day or throughout, you know, running errands or traveling or whatever when, you know, we sort of tend to take those lessons away from kids. So stop every once in a while. You know, I know we're in a rush. I know we're under pressure. I know we're overscheduled. But every once in a while, take, just stop and take a breath and say, would this be a really great opportunity to give my kid a moment to figure out his own strategy or problem solving? Mm. 
And I feel this is a great place for me to interject that meditation really helps with that. I know everyone's super yeah. busy already. I completely yep. get it. But the you know, if you can even dedicate five minutes out of your day anytime, even if it's on break at work, sit in your car, coming back and pausing for a moment, like you just said, becomes a much more habitual and natural um, thing in your life throughout the day. It just makes it that much easier. And it, from parents I've talked to or when I was parenting, it made me much more present for my children mm-hmm. or my significant other. So, well, and I even tell parents go so far as to plan to have an extra moment. Like when you are walking out of the house, and the, most parents say that they really dislike, you know, morning. It's just too hectic. Sure. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, but if you, plan ahead and sort of say, okay, look, before we head out the door today, I'm going to stop for a minute and say, kids, every time I walk out of the house, I have to do a little mental checklist. Do I have my phone? Do I have my keys? Do I have my whatever? Let's all take a minute just to do that right now. And then that sort of teaches kids, instead of just telling them, don't forget your backpack, you could help them come up with their own ways to realize that they are forgetting their backpack and to strategize themselves. And Mm -hmm. I've never ever been so grateful for the, the speaking of meditation than for the fact that my younger child loves to do yoga and meditation wow. with me. And that is thanks to a mutual friend of ours, um, uh, MC Yogi and his oh, yeah. wife, uh, Amanda mm-hmm. Giacomini, uh, there, uh, he got into, uh, MC Yogi's music and started doing yoga largely because of that. And that's been something that we've shared together for the past couple of years and wow. has been, I think one of the best parts of parenting this kid. It's, it's wonderful to see a kid adopt this, um, mindfulness practice from a young age under his own steam yeah how special well i'll try to um incorporate that into the workshops i do with the the young uh, adults and often i'll bring my guitar and do a music meditation give them a simple breath practice before that and yeah um, because i know for younger younger people it's it's not interesting you know i want to play my video games or do this or that but it's always so great to see younger uh, children getting interested or even teenagers um so how wonderful. So that's great. What a special bond. Um, so number four, view failure, failure. This is a big one. View failure as opportunity for growth. Yeah. So there's this fantastic book I love. It's a business book by uh, Tim Harford called Adapt. Mm. The paperback back has a picture of a chameleon on the front. And Tim Harford talks about all these instances in business when it wasn't the fact that someone made a huge mistake that was the important part of the story, but their approach, their positive adaptive response to that failure that ended, that created their eventual success. And the thing you can't do is blame someone else for your mistakes or pretend it never happened or, you know, fall apart because of your mistakes. You have to move forward and say, okay, well, what didn't work and what did work that last time around and what am I going to bring forward with me and what am I going to leave behind? Which is what's so funny about working on the stinky and dirty show, because Mm -hmm. that's what that show is. It's a dump truck and a digger who are given a challenge. You know, this truck broke down, it's full of bowling balls and we have to get the bowling balls to the bowling alley. How are we going to do that? And they have to innovate. They have to come up with um, mechanical solutions and and recycling so they t- use trash from from dirty stinky's hopper to you know sort of make that happen mm. but they also make a ton of really silly mistakes along the way and through sort of experiencing those mistakes and supporting each other through those mistakes they realize how to move forward and 
that's what we need to be doing for kids is understanding that this mistake is not a disaster. It's not, um, you know, the end of their hopes for Harvard. It's not, it is a really important moment that we need to take advantage of and embrace and talk about and not deny, but, but figure out how to do better and move forward. And part of that means that we have to be making our own mistakes and talking about our own failures in front of our kids and modeling that for our kids. We can't ask them to be brave about our mistakes and our failures and the way we adapt. Um, if, if they're not seeing us do it. So we have to do a little bit of, um, that role modeling is just so important. Yeah, agreed. As you were talking, I was thinking, wow, yeah, I try to do that in my own life, you know, as a yeah. as a big adult kid yeah. that I am. So absolutely. And that segues wonderfully into number five, where you talk about, or it says, model intellectual and emotional bravery for kids. Yeah. So one of the most important things, I, one of the things I realized I was not doing for my own kids that I was doing for my students is at the end of each class, um, there were always questions I'd have to, or something I'd need to research for the next class. I'd always think about, you know, what went well and what went wrong. And sometimes that required me to apologize to my students and say, you know what, we had this lesson yesterday and I thought it went really well, but it's pretty clear that like half of you are confused about this thing we talked about and that's my mistake, not yours. So let me go back and fix that now. Um, and doing that in front of my students is really, really important. And with my advisees, I was often, we'd talk a lot about goals. We'd talk about, and I don't, as their advisor, I wasn't that wrapped up in their grades. I was more interested in, are they achieving their personal goals? Are they growing as human beings? And for some crazy reason, I was not doing that same stuff with my own kids. So we started, we stopped talking about grades pretty much. Um, we definitely don't put report cards on the refrigerator. We definitely, um, you know, don't freak out and send pictures to grandma and all that kind of stuff. What we do instead is we try to talk a lot about what our goals are, short term and long term. And I share mine and my kids share theirs. And my husband shares his. And one, the rule, though, when we especially when we first started doing this is that one of them had to be a little scary. Mm. One of them had to be something that pushed us outside of our comfort zone. And for me, those have included going back to Algebra 1 um, in order to undo this sort of I'm bad at math uh self-fulfilling prophecy that a teacher sort of laid on me when I was like 12. Sure. Um, I went and learned some guitar because that's wow. really just not something that I, I, I took guitar lessons with my, um, my kid who's now 19. Huh. He excelled and could play Layla by like the fourth lesson and I can barely <laughs> change chords. But you know, if, if anyone's ever read, if you've ever read Carol Dweck's mindset, you know that, the way we think about our intelligence is really important. If we understand that our intelligence becomes greater and more powerful and stronger, the more we push ourselves to try things that make us uncomfortable or, or, or outside of our comfort zone, the more intelligent we become, the more we show our kids that, the more we make goals for ourselves that are a little scary and they see us make mistakes and not achieve those goals. And then we talk about them in front of our kids and how we're going to do better next time. Um, you know, we're showing them that our life goals are always going to be much more important than the individual grades we get along the way. And, uh, that those long-term goals are really what shape our lives. And I have to put a shout out there's an incredible documentary. Um, it's only 15 minutes long. It's called follow through and it's by R. it was made by REI, the recreational outdoor company. Yeah. 
with this woman, uh, this free skier, she, full disclosure, she's a former student of mine named Caroline Gleick, uh, who wanted to ski all 40 of the, um, the routes in a book called The Shooting Gallery. It's a Wasatch, in the Wasatch Mountains. There are these really difficult, steep slopes. And she wanted to do all 40 of them. And she made that her goal. And she didn't just jump out and start skiing them. She had to learn mountaineering. She had to become certified in avalanche um, detection and prevention and that kind of stuff. She had to, you know, do all of these things in order to achieve her goals. And the thing we know about it, about writing down our goals is we're automatically more likely to achieve them the minute we write them down. Wow. And so over and over again, I show that short documentary to my students and say, look, if you are feeling lost or you're feeling like you don't have any power over your life, look at this person who was being, um, she had a troll, she had a stalker who was basically telling her that she had no business being out in the mountains, that she's just a pretty face. She has no skills. She's just a sports model. Um, and she needs, she's going to die like her brother and her stepbrother did in an avalanche. Um, and she didn't listen to any of those people and she achieved her goals. And that follow through is something we really need to start modeling for our kids. I try to do it for my students and for my own kids. And I just, I can't tell you how important it is to have goals. That's awesome. And where can, um, people check that documentary out? Is it on just YouTube? Just Google or? follow through. Okay. REI, Caroline Gleick, G-L-E-I-C-H. By the way, she's also one of the best Instagram follows out there. Nice. Um, this, is a, this is a woman who has just, and she's also, I tell her story in The Gift of Failure as well. This is a woman who has just willed herself into the most amazing career as a professional athlete, endurance athlete, sports model, um, mountaineer. She's an incredible, incredible woman. I have so much respect for her and um, yeah, this documentary is well worth 15 minutes of your time. Yeah. Can't argue with 15 minutes. That's awesome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, so Jessica, thank you so much. We absolutely barely touched on any, any of the questions I prepared. Um, like I said, I had all these excerpts from your book I was going to read. And, um, <laughs> I, I think we covered a lot of very important ground. This was a, a real treat for me, but I do want to give you the floor. If there's anything that we did not discuss, um, in your book, um, or in general, I mean, we've talked about your website, jessicalehy.com. You can visit that, see where Jessica's speaking, see um, some book recommendations, um, things that have influenced her life. Uh, but that said, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you would like to uh, close out on? You know, if you if you end up reading the book and you have any questions, uh, as I mentioned, uh, there are these gift of failure, frequently asked questions, little videos I made just to sort of answer the questions I get most often. And they range from, you know, how do I motivate a kid who just wants to coast or how do I help a really anxious kid or what about my special needs kid? And there's even an answer to the question I get a lot, which <laughs> which is how do I get my kid to start showering? <laughs> <laughs> so that's on there. But also the really if you sign up um, at just galehi.com you get an auto respond with every one of my favorite books links to bibliography links to videos i like links to other educators i like links to articles that get requested and and get talked about the most often um sort of my greatest hit stuff so awesome. if you're ever sort of interested in just finding out more i guess the best thing for you to do is to sign up at jessicalehi.com and wait for that auto reply to show up in your in your mailbox and it'll have every possible link you could ever want in there lovely well jessica thank you again this has been uh, super fun this has and been 
Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that wonderful. Thank you. I, I, uh, yeah, no, I'm like, thrilled. This has been a blast. And I, I love anytime I get to talk about, you know, working with kids, I'm, I'm happy. So yeah, what a treat. So again, uh, for anyone listening, jessicalahey.com, or if you're on the Be Here Now network, simply scroll down, click on the link, the name of uh, Jessica's New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure. How the best parents learn to let go so their children can succeed is available everywhere books are sold. I sincerely cannot recommend it enough. Um, parent or not, this is a book I believe that can benefit anyone who reads it. So um, that said, Jessica, we will certainly have you back on the show. Maybe talk more about this. Talk about your next book. Talk about all sorts of interesting things. This has been a real Fantastic. pleasure. Thank you very much. Absolutely. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.